0: Make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Really great to have everybody here today. Love to see you pick up those conversations after the service. If you didn't get here before the service, um, you, you really should because the, uh, the cafe has some really cool things happening over there ahead of time. So uh, if, if you want to ditch the, the corporate coffee and come over here and get one before the service, you could grab one over in the other building and that would be a good time to meet some folks as well. So we're happy you're here and as, uh, as Roger mentioned, We're starting a new series today. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews for a while here. And so this first four chapters, we're calling the King and looking at the superiority of Jesus as God's Son. And uh, that's kind of what we're going to be doing. Uh, This book is a book that was... um, written by we don't know who, okay? So as we get into this, we're going to find out it's not real clear who wrote it. It is really clear who he wrote it to and why he wrote it. We'll share a little bit more of that as we get into it. When we talk about studying the Bible, our goal here is to understand what the original writer intended his original reader to understand. So anytime you read any passage of the scriptures, you have to go, okay, who was the original writer? What kind of culture did he live in? What language did he write the book in? What were the historical things that were happening around him at at that point in time, what was his original reader going through? And then what would he want his original reader to then understand from what he wrote? Okay. Now, none of us in here, you raise your hand if you are, are probably first century Jewish Christians. Okay, there's one. All right. Good, good. You, the, you, you can explain it to us then. Okay. But uh, so, so it's a little bit of put yourself in somebody else's shoes in order to understand what the text is trying to teach. But then the other thing that we're going to see as we go through this is that there are truths that remain truths and are always applicable to the lives of the followers of God. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through this is that, yes, it was written by well, let's just get into it here. The The audience here, the original audience would have been Jewish Christians, um, probably in Rome during the persecution under Nero. Now, again, we don't know exactly when this was written because it's not super clear who wrote it, but it looks like that it was written to a group of Christians in Rome that were dealing with persecution, particularly under Nero. Uh, these people are experiencing a pullback to old ways of worship rather than clinging to Christ. Now, this is one of those places where you could say this is definitely something that's happened in our culture is that there's a a sort of a cultural movement about how to interact with God. Every culture has that. And what the easy thing to do is to just kind of go along with what's happening in the culture around you rather than say, hey, what is God actually calling us to? And so these people, they're experiencing political, social, and family pressure to abandon Jesus and go back into practicing a more socially acceptable form of religion. Now, Fortunately, that's definitely not something that we would struggle with, right? There's no political pressure to Just kind of go along with what everybody else is doing instead of following Jesus in our age. So well, we can skip that one. Um, no, probably not. Right. There's no social pressure to just sort of fit in with the crowd at work. Or maybe, uh, maybe, maybe it's not a social pressure for you, but maybe you have family members that are against Christianity and are against Christ. And, and so maybe, you know, birthdays and family gatherings and those types of things are a little bit stressful because you want to stand up for who you are and, and live your life according to to the way that Christ would call you to live it, but maybe there's a little family pressure not to not do that. And so this is something that was going on at this point in time, was uh, this socially acceptable religion. Um, and I think that's definitely something that we can identify with, that there is a sort of sort of a socially acceptable way that everybody wants you to talk about and approach God. And then there's what Christ is calling us to, right? Uh, And so these are followers of Jesus uh, in the audience here, but some of them need a word of exhortation. And that word exhortation, we're going to see it show up. It can mean encouragement, like let's keep going. Don't give up. Uh, Continue to do what you know is right. But it can also mean sort of like putting the spurs to somebody and challenging them. Hey, stop doing that. That's the wrong thing. And we don't want you to do the wrong thing, but we want you to do the right thing, right? Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is God-breathed and that it's useful for correction, right? For telling us what's wrong, for training in righteousness, for telling us what is right. And then uh, so we can miss what's wrong. We can do what's right. We can stay right. And we can then teach others to do what is right. And that's what God's word is useful for. And so that's what we want to do here in this book. Uh, The original writer, like I was talking about here, come on, baby. Maybe go to the next slide for me. There we go. He's a Hellenized Jewish man who's a follower of Jesus. We, again, don't know exactly who this is, um, but it's someone that understands the difficulty of having a longstanding religious heritage and then having that heritage change because they're truly following Jesus. Maybe you can identify with this. Maybe you have a longstanding religious heritage, uh, but it doesn't quite match what Jesus is calling you to right now. Um, Maybe, maybe you grew up in a a portion of Christianity that didn't really think very highly of God's word and tradition got put on top of that. Or maybe they didn't really think highly of God's word and what was socially popular at the time got got put on top of that. You know, maybe you can identify with this and instead of doing what's been happening in your life, God is calling you to something new and deeper. This is someone who cares deeply about Jewish Christians and longs for them to embrace the grace of God and the greatness of Christ. The Jewish people were really stuck stuck on rules and regulations. And so what this writer is really trying to get them to do is break away from this old way and into the grace of God. Okay, so that's a big part of it. Uh, Many people have suggested either Paul as Apollos as the author. There are some that say maybe it was Priscilla and Aquila, and they wrote it together and then sent it to the Christians in Rome. Some people think maybe Timothy picked up where Paul left off and wrote it. There's a a bunch of different viewpoints on this. Um, I think that it... The, the information inside the text points us to it being written before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem because there's no mention of it. And when you're trying to tell people Jesus is better than Judaism, if the temple were destroyed, I think that'd show up in the letter. So it makes sense that this was written before 70 AD and probably I would lean towards Paul, but there's good reasoning to think maybe Apollos as well. Again, we don't know for certain. I think I'm going to need your help with these if you'll go to the next one. Or maybe it just went. So the literary style here that's within this is Hellenistic prose. And so this is an epistle that was written in a way that was common for Greek orators and Greek writers to communicate, um, especially during that point in time. Now, the Jewish mind, when we went through the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is written in a very Jewish way. Sort of grab a picture here, grab a picture here, very artistic oriented. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then kind of bring it together and form our point. And that's very much how the Jewish mind would work. Pictures and images and then bring them all together. Hey, thanks. We'll try this iPad. Um, and, uh, and so that's that's kind of how that was written for the book of Hebrews. This Hellenistic style is more of a linear, logical progression of thought saying Jesus is greater than the Old Testament, and so uh, that's what you have going on here. That said, there's a lot of information about the Old Testament in this book. You have 29 direct quotations from the Old Testament, and you also have 53 clear allusions, um, and these are all used to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to the old way of religion. Okay, the context as we, or the content as we go through this, again, the superiority of Christ, and thus Christianity is the major push of the letter. The words better, perfect, and heavenly are frequently used as we go through this. Uh, the other thing that he's doing for them is to, he's teaching them to avoid apostasy, which is to abandon the teaching of the apostles, right? If you want to put it in simple ways, to, apostasy is to abandon the teaching of Jesus and the apostles for something like the Gnostic Gospels or something along those lines, okay, For them, it would have been back to Judaism. There's five major warnings in this book. And so as you look at these five warnings, you have uh, don't drift away from Christ. That's the first one that you see is there's a really strong warning. Don't drift away from Christ, but hold fast to him remain in him. The next one is that God's word judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is important because I could put up a show for you that I was all out for Jesus, but then live different. In other areas of my life. And what the Word of God does is it pops that out real clear, that that it's happening and that it should stop, okay? Uh, There's a warning that faithless living can result in a loss of rewards. As you look at these passages, there's been some people that say that they're saying that a Christian could lose their salvation, that you could be saved and then lose it. I think the old line on this is funny and the best one. If you could lose your salvation you would. Um, like I can't keep track of my car keys, right? Um, if, if, if it were dependent upon me to remain saved, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. But thanks be to God, Christ has saved me, is saving me, and will save me to the end, right? He is the one who's sustaining this for us. But what this is teaching is that the faithless can lose rewards. And so to live in a way that doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord, that doesn't recognize him, and then kind of goes my own way or goes the way of the society around me, that could result in a loss of rewards when I reach heaven. Okay. And so when we went through uh, the book of Revelation, we talked about this and, and this is something that our life on earth matters. The way that we live is going to be rewarded by God in the new heaven and the new earth. But Faithless living could result in a loss of rewards. I meant to share this with you when I opened. If you want access to these slides, we have them on Google. I sent a link, or Josh sent a link in an email, and you're welcome to follow along with that link. If you didn't get it, I'd be happy to give it to you afterwards, but you don't need to take a picture of me and have the top of my head in these. We'll, we'll send them to you. Um, Uh, the, The fourth warning is that God will act sternly towards willful sin. So if you have an area of your life where you know the word of God has made it clear to you that your practice of greed is wrong and you remain greedy and ignore God, God is going to step into your life and he's going to discipline you. If you know that the word of God has taught you very clearly about sexuality and you ignore what the scripture says about sexuality to do it the way that the culture around us is, God is going to step into the life of a believer and He is going to discipline them. Them, okay and he will do so sternly that's the warning there in chapter 10 and the the last warning is that to depart, to depart from the grace of god back to the law, actually invites God's retribution, that when you put yourself under law, it's actually going to cause you to experience a lack of life, not more life, and that's the warning that is listed there, so you have that, the, the book you can break into three major sections, the first one, chapters one through four, is the superiority of the person of Christ, he is the king, okay, the um, Chapters 5 through 10 talk about the priesthood of Christ and it being superior to Old Testament priesthood and then chapters 11 through 13 talk about the superiority superiority of the power of Christ. Now, the first four chapters you'll be able to follow along with me pretty well because I think most of us can grab onto how Jesus is better than some of these Old Testament figures. When we get into the priesthood, how many of you have studied Jewish priesthood? It's going to be a little harder. Hey, we, there's one on this side of the room. Okay. Um, <laughs> but most people, you're gonna, when we get into that, you're going to go, this is kind of spinning my head a little bit. And many commentators have described Hebrews as actually more difficult than the book of Revelation. So if you like coming here, we did Ezekiel, and then we did Revelation, and now we're doing Hebrews. So if you like puzzles, you're in the right place. Um, that said, I do want to make this as clear as possible to you. And so as we get into this, I'm going I'm to pray right now, and then we'll go through the first three verses of uh, this book. So Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning uh, that you have made yourself known to us, uh, that you've made your character and your action, your person, um, your plan. You've made all of that known to us and you made it known for several millennia through the Jewish people, through prophets and writers of the Old Testament. You made all of that known to us. And then it all pointed forward to that moment when your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would dwell among us as God in flesh and save us from our sin, give us new life, and promise us an eternity that we could never secure for ourselves. And so it's amazing what you've done for us. Help us encounter that in a new way this morning and and draw us closer to yourself. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by different prophets at different times in different ways long ago. This is an interesting way that he opens up his letter. He essentially says, let's begin at the beginning. And instead of giving like a genealogy of Jesus or something along those lines, the Hebrew writer in his approach to sharing the gospel and making sure that the gospel is forefront in people's minds, as he says, long ago. In other words, God has always been acting. He continues to act, but he did it in the past by speaking to our ancestors, the Jewish people, by prophets, those who would speak forth the mind of God to the nation of Israel and then to the rest of the world. He did it at different times and in different ways. And one of the things that this teaches us is that we should acknowledge that Old Testament writings are valid revelations of God. When you look at Old Testament stories, they're not just random stories or they're not just nice morals for us to live our lives by, but these are revelations from God to humanity about who God is. Okay, so that's a really important approach. A lot of times when we read the Old Testament, we go, man, I wish I could have as much faith as Daniel, or I wish I could be as good as so-and-so, right? And we try and make ourselves into the, hero of the Old Testament. That's really not what we want to do. What we want to do when we, we, we read the Old Testament is say, how is this pointing to Jesus? What does this passage teach us about God's plan of salvation and how did it come to pass through Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, the other thing is that God is not an angry God of the Old Testament and a happy God of the New Testament, but one unified God of character, plan, and action, okay? God is not somebody different in the Old Testament and somebody different in the New Testament. It is the same God. And I think when you talk about this, you have to understand that there are things that remain consistent about who God is. One is that he is holy and he is righteous and he hates sin. Like that's just part of who God is. He has righteous anger, wrath towards us rejecting him and harming each other. He hates sin. Okay, that's just part of who God is. That's why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because of their sin, their rebellion towards him and the harm that they were creating towards one another. But then God is also a God of justice and mercy, forgiveness, and kindness. And so he's the same God that kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He clothed them with animal skins. He sacrificed an animal on their behalf and then clothed them in that animal so that they could be covered from their sin, right? That's what that story is about. And ultimately, that story teaches us that there will come one who will crush the head of the serpent and free God's people, bringing them back into relationship with him. And essentially, that's what the whole Old Testament is about, is pointing us forward through the sacrifice. Sacrificial system And all these different things to this time when God would bring about justice. He would make right, justify his people. When we talk about salvation, there's three components of salvation. Okay. Salvation is that we were justified by Jesus's blood, that his blood shed for us on the cross made us right in a court of law with God because our debt was paid off. If you have trusted in Jesus's death on the cross to save you from your sins, you are no longer condemned before the judge, but you are justified justified. justified before the judge because your account is paid in full. So there's that made right, that justification. The next thing that he does for us under the umbrella of salvation is he sanctifies us. Uh, The process of sanctification is that God makes us like him right that's what he's doing in us he's not making me a better version of me he's turning me into the image of his own son i become a partaker of the divine nature and it's actually the elimination and killing of kurt and the lifting up of the person of jesus that's taking place in my life if you're a christian that's what he's doing he's killing the old you and he's bringing about the image of christ within you okay this is an amazing transformation that we call sanctification so you have sal- salvation being justified i'm made right you have sanctification. I'm being made into the image of God himself. Jesus is forming his image in me. Um, And then the last one is that he promises us glorification, that there is a new heavens and a new earth where sin does not dwell either in me or in it. And that is a promised eternity for those who are in Christ. And so that's the plan that God has had all along, that he would justify us and make us right by bloodshed, the blood of the lamb, his own son, that he would then sanctify us and transform us into the image of his son, that we'd be conformed to his image. And then the last one is that he will glorify us and he promises us a new heaven and a new earth. That has been God's plan from the very beginning. And so what we see in Jesus is not the abolishment of the Old Testament, but him fulfilling what it pointed to. All right. Jesus is not just the center of history's meta narrative; He is the meta narrative of all history. Like there is nothing that has happened in human history that Jesus is not at the center of either trying to redeem it or in the process of condemning it. Like he's the one that does those two things. It's either going to be condemned and receive Jesus's wrath or it's going to be redeemed and brought into his kingdom. Jesus is at the center of all of it. That means you and me and everything that's happening around us. Jesus is the point of it all. And so this verse sets the tone for how the Holy Spirit is guiding the writer of Hebrews to explain the gospel. As I said, he does an interesting thing, uh, the writer of Hebrews, he's gonna explain the gospel, but not by reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's gonna explain the gospel by reading the Old Testament, which is a really interesting thing that he does. So he goes on, he says in these last days, so he's spoken through prophets to his his ancestors by different, at different times in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him, Jesus, the heir of all things and made the universe through him. So we have this old revelation in the Old Testament. Now there is this brand new revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And so a greater revelation is given through God's son. Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is. Uh, Jesus is the eternal creator. Made flesh. So when you look at these verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water. And, and then the Father says these combinations of words in those passages. He says, This is my beloved Son, the chosen one, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And that's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us over and over again. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Don't don't listen. I understand. There's a lot of voices vying to shape your mind and the choices that you make. There's there's that thing that you wander around in your pocket and you spend however many hours a day staring at. And then there's the television on your wall. And then there's there's your coworkers and there's your family and there's all these influences that are sort of changing the way that you would think and the way that you would believe. But what I want you to do each and every time that you come to the scriptures, each and every time we come together as a family of God, we wanna listen to Jesus and recalibrate our minds to truth. Because you're gonna leave here, you're gonna live in the world, and hopefully every day you're doing something to recalibrate your mind to God's truth. But that's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is gonna do for these people at this point in time and for us now is tell us to listen to Jesus over and over again. It says there's this phrase here where it says he is the heir of all things. God has appointed him the heir of all things. And what that means is that Jesus everything is invested in him. That's a pretty interesting statement. That God the Father invested everything in the Son. All of all of his wrath, all of his judgment, all of his mercy all of his grace, all of his kindness, all of his love and all of his forgiveness, all of his power, all of his creative ability, all of everything that God is, is invested in the son. And because of that, he has full authority over everything. That would include you and I. He is the only way to be right with God and to know the father. He's the heir of everything. Everything is invested in him and he's the one way to know the father. He is, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That phrase, the radiance of God's glory, to the Jewish person, that would have just been, he's what, right? Because in the Old Testament, when they talked about God's glory, the Hebrew word was Shekinah. They talked about his Shekinah glory, his one of a kind, unique glory. Godness, right? Like when 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 Moses asks, who shall I say sent me? He says, I got nothing to compare me to. You shall call me I tell them I am that I am has sent me. The self-existing, un- uncreated one who made everything and everyone. That's just tell them that's who sent me. And they would describe that as God's Shekinah, his glory, his unique, one-of-a-kind godness. And he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Have you ever been next to a heater, like a, maybe a wood f- wood fire, and you feel the radiant heat coming off of it? Like you feel that? That's essentially what they're saying, is that when Jesus took on flesh and walked among us, we felt the radiance, the power, the majesty, the love, the awe of God in him. Right? They're saying God's Shekinah glory radiated from Jesus. He walked around as this, as God. And everyone felt it. And so Jesus embodies the entirety of God's unique character and nature. And this is an important statement here. Jesus is not human, made divine. There are uh, there's no nice way to say it. There are cults of Christianity that teach that Jesus is a human made divine by his own actions, that as he obeyed the father, he became divine. That is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that he is divine with skin on, that he showed up and always has been, always will be God. He didn't do something to become God. He is God and he chose to put on human skin. So God literally has skin in the game and he spent his life cleansing us from all sin. Think about that. God literally has skin in the game of saving us. He literally cares enough to put his own skin in the game to say, I'm going to make it right. You think you have to make it right. I'm going to do it for you. You think you have a debt to pay. I'm going to pay it for you. You know that there's a distance between you and God and you find the chasm uncrossable. I'll cross it for you. That's what God did for us. That's his skin in the game. He literally spent his life on cleansing us. And so Jesus is greater than all others and worthy of wholehearted devotion. He is the only thing holding us back from destruction and has saved us from wrath. Look at this, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He is the one that is keeping you and me from being destroyed right now. Like if, if we got what we deserved, It'd be over, and so God is protecting us by his own son's skin. He is saving us. He is withholding wrath from us and poured it out on his son on the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could be sustained, so that we could be made new. He's doing that for us. And then he is currently seated as Lord of all and exercises all authority after making purification for sins. Again, a very Jewish way to talk about sin being washed away, that there would be an animal sacrifice that would die on the individual's behalf and purify. Them, cleanse them from their sin. Now here comes the Lamb of God who dies in our place and for our sins so that we can be saved and made new and glorified in His image. Right? So that's what God is doing through His Son. He is currently seated as Lord of all and exercises all authority. Those are some tremendous statements about Jesus, aren't they? We're three verses in. And here's the thing is Since, not if, since that's who Jesus is, how should you and I respond? I mean, if he's the one keeping me from being destroyed because of my own sin and has done what's necessary to make it so that I will never be accountable for my sin, I should probably live a grateful life, right? Wouldn't it make sense to be grateful that he's paid my debt? Wouldn't it be just logical to go, God, thank you. I mean, never mind the emotional side of it, of being someone condemned to death and now free to life. But just, just the logical side of it says thank you. I mean, if, if he's the one who throughout all of human history was the one that was pointed to so that we could be saved... If if the Father spoke audibly from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the chosen one, listen to him. Man, it'd be good to be in a gospel, wouldn't it? I should probably spend time in Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke and and know these chapters and understand who Jesus is. And Bible reading and prayer and interaction with Jesus on a daily basis in his word, that would probably be a really good idea. I should listen to him. If he, if he then took the 12 guys who were around him and said, I'm going to use you to share this message throughout the entire earth, and then those 12 guys plus one who got replaced and Paul then wrote the New Testament for us and gave us the right doctrine, the right teaching, the right understanding of how to live and how to please God, probably makes sense for me to spend time in the rest of the New Testament as well to read the epistles, to dive deep into God's word and to allow his word to be what forms my mind. Not only that, it probably would be a good idea to understand that there are many other things out there that would try to form my mind. There's so many voices, so many things trying to tell you what's right and what's wrong, what's moral and what's immoral, what's good and what's best. There's so many voices trying to tell you that. And if you just go with the flow of this world, just like the people that were dealing with persecution in Rome, you're gonna fall back from Christ. If you just go with the flow of what's happening in the world around you, you're gonna find yourself still saved, still in his family, but distant from him. And so he's calling us to remain united, to be close to him, to listen to his word, and to allow what he says to form our minds. Now, if it's best for my mind to be formed by God's word, what would be best for my children? I'm going to send them to a public school (laughs) and they're going to be told day in and day out the opposite, for the most part, of what the scriptures teach. And I'm going to do that for 13 years and then I'm going to be surprised when they don't follow God in adulthood. No, I have to be, I have to combat this as a parent. I have to make sure that if my children are in that environment, that I'm consistently replacing what's wrong with what's right from God's word. I have to teach them to discern that as well. They're going to need to know how to discern what is from the world and what is from God they're going to need to know how to do that. We're going to need to lift up Jesus on a daily basis in my own life and in the life of my children because if I want their mind, their life, their eternity to be formed by Jesus' love, grace, forgiveness, and gospel, then I'm going to need to preach it to myself and to them always. Because if I don't, I'm, one, I'm shirking my, resp- my responsibility as a parent. I'm, I'm just leaving my child to the wolves. And so that would be wrong. No, but, but not only that, but it's just showing a lack of love for them. Oh, what about my coworkers? If, if it's best for God's word to form my mind and it's best for God's word to form my kids' minds, then why am I not carrying this into my workplace? Why am I not carrying this into my family gatherings where I know that there's somebody that's hostile towards the gospel? I'm not exactly sure what step of faith God is calling you to. But I'm willing to say he's not calling you to do nothing. And so I'm not sure how you came here this morning. Maybe you came here this morning and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe this is brand new to you. Listen to me. He saved you from your sin. He died on the cross so that you could be cleansed. He rose from the dead to give you new life. And he promises you an eternity that you could never secure for yourself. I know what step of faith you're supposed to take. He's calling you to believe. He's calling you to trust. And as a spokesman for his gospel, I'm imploring you to do so. Take that step of faith today. Now, if you've taken that step of faith, what do you do next? Well, we don't say goodbye, go figure it out for yourself. No, you get involved in a community of believers like here at the church and you be involved in a Bible study. And if you're a lady, show up to the simulcast. And if you're a guy, come to a men's group tomorrow night. And there's so many other things that you could do to engage in a family of God that's surrounding you with love and God's word so that your mind can be formed to understand what is true and right and then practice it as the Holy Spirit empowers you. Take that step of faith. If you've been doing that for a while, I wonder who you could invite along with you. Hey, I go to Monday Night Men's. Hey, I, I, I'm going to the simulcast. Hey, I'm a part of a, a Bible study. I wonder who you could invite with you. Start viewing yourself as a fisher of men. And there's that coworker that you feel like maybe God actually is working in their life. He is. And you want to be a part of God working in their life. And so you say, why don't you come to this thing with me? Let's get together and have coffee before it so I can kind of tell you where I'm coming from. I, I don't know what step of faith he might be having you take. Maybe it's something totally different than that. Maybe, maybe your life is upside down because you just can't stop buying stuff. Like the American way of materialism has just infected your blood flow and you, you're having a hard time stopping. Maybe he's calling you repent from that and use your money for his glory. I'm not sure what he's telling you this morning. But if this is who Jesus is, how should we respond? And I'll give you maybe a more vague way. And the vague way is to say, God, is there something in me you want to deal with? And then be quiet. And maybe you need to be quiet for a little while. This is what they call waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not doing nothing. Waiting on the Lord is saying, my hands are empty, please fill them. And then when he speaks to you, you say, okay, God, that's what you showed me. Now I want to respond in faith. And here's a really cool thing is that God is patient and he doesn't expect you to be perfect. He may work with you on this for five months. He may work with you on this for 10 years. You might make it to the grave and he's not done yet. But he's patient and he loves you, and he's worthy to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, that he is the exact expression of who you are, that you invested all of the Godhead, all of, all of your power, all of your might, all of your person, all of your love, everything was in Jesus and he radiated your unique glory as he walked this earth. And he spent your unique glory, he spent God, God, this is hard to say, he spent your unique glory on my salvation. On our salvation. Making us right, transforming us into new creatures and promising us a future that we could never secure for ourselves. For one, God, I just want to say thank you. And God, I pray that you would work in the lives of each person here to show them their next step of faith, and that based upon who your son is, who Jesus Christ is, and what he has done, they would walk in obedience. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.